The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. My guest today was an evangelical Anglican bishop for 37 years, one of the Church of England's leading scholars, its leading voice for persecuted Christians around the world, Bishop of the Ancient See of Rochester and, very nearly, Archbishop of Canterbury. But as of this month, his title is Monsignor. I am, of course, talking about Michael Nazar Ali, who has joined the Ordinariate for ex-Anglicans set up by Pope Benedict XVI and just been created a prelate of honour, carrying the title of Monsignor, by Pope Francis. Earlier, we had a fascinating discussion about what the world regarded as a fairly dramatic change of allegiance by an evangelical bishop who used to ordain women priests, and who now finds himself a very heavy hitter in a fairly small Catholic organisation, the Ordinariate, which is both dynamic and, I believe, constrained by lack of support from the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. I think you'll be very interested in what he had to say. Well, first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on becoming a prelate of honour, which means that you're now Monsignor Michael Nazarelli. Yes, I'm sorry about this rapidly changing world in which we live. (laughs) Well, I'm pleased because as a supporter of the Ordinariate, for me it signifies that Rome is still taking this seriously. Making you a Monsignor is an indication of that, I think. Yes, I'm glad that they are taking it seriously because I think there is a lot of potential in this. Well, I bet a few years ago the name Monsignor Michael Nazarelli would have sounded very strange to you, wouldn't it? Well, I've got so used to being called bishop. You know, I've been an Anglican bishop since 1984. Goodness. So that's a very long time, and first in Pakistan and then here. I think for most people, Michael will be fine. <laughs> okay, well, that's refreshing. So, Michael, this will be your first Easter as a Catholic. Yeah. You were known as somebody broadly from the evangelical wing of the Church of England. I don't know if that's how you describe yourself, but that's how you were described in the press. And I want to ask you, first of all, does that mean that there was a greater theological leap for you in entering into full communion with the Holy See? And secondly, I've noticed a lot of former evangelicals becoming Catholics, where in the past it always used to be Anglo-Catholics, and now there seems to be this attraction for people you, would, you wouldn't have expected to cross the Tiber, as it were. It seems to be a phenomenon. So any thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I've always called myself a Catholic evangelical or an evangelical Catholic, you take your pick, because I've always had a strong doctrine of the church, but also a sense that the gospel needs to be lived and communicated and all of those things. So, yes, I think you're right that there is a move. I mean, even in the ordinariate in this country as at present uh, constituted, I've been surprised at how many people have come from what you might call an evangelical Anglican background rather than an Anglo-Catholic background. I mean, the ordinariate presents itself 
as Anglo-Catholic, but the people who actually belong to it, it's quite mixed. The reasons will be varied, of course, but one of them, I'm sure, is that of authority, is how to read the Bible along with the church and the dangers of private interpretation, which we can see both on the kind of fundamentalist side, but also on the liberal side, where you can choose the Bible to mean anything. I think many people are now discerning that is simply not enough. But what about the stumbling blocks, the, the, the doctrines that for evangelicals would always have been very difficult, such as the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary or the infallibility of the Pope? What, what about those? Well, first, I think that uh, the, the real stumbling blocks in the past would have been justification by faith. They would have been the final authority of the scriptures, things like that. Now, I think on justification by faith, the Roman Catholic Lutheran agreement has cleared the way so that the Catholic Church now takes this doctrine more seriously than the liberal Protestant denominations do. And Pope Benedict certainly wrote uh, very helpfully on this, basically upholding Luther in his central teaching, but also saying that justification by faith had to be seen alongside the necessity for works of love. Scripture also, I think, in the Second Vatican Council and John Paul II were both very helpful in saying that Scripture was once for all, that it was immutable, that it oriented all of the Church's teaching to Christ and and those things. So I think those were two quite important developments, we might say. You'd asked about the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. I think that there's a mean here between too much neglect and uh, excessive devotion. So the Second Vatican Council actually warns Catholics about excessive devotion and um, says that of the Blessed Virgin, for instance, it says that all her titles point to Christ. And I think that must be right. She is and always should be understood to be pointing to Christ. Papal infallibility, well, as you know, that is hedged about with many safeguards. And whether it is the infallibility of the Pope or of the Pope together with the bishops, I mean, we mustn't forget that that also attracts um, an understanding of infallible teaching. For both of them, I mean, the magisterium really at any level, however exercised, I continue to believe that the Pope and the bishops together with him can teach the faith of the church. They can declare the faith of the church. They can clarify the faith of the church in certain circumstances, but they cannot change the faith of the church. I wanted to ask you about the question of Anglican orders. Now, I remember when you became a Catholic, Giles Fraser tweeted out something like, oh, does he think he was just ordaining laymen now? That's often rather a sticking point for Anglicans thinking of crossing the Tiber, that they don't want to disown their previous orders. However, I have noticed that there have been reports that this particular Pope apparently privately accepts, at least up to a point, the validity of Anglican orders. He was quoted as having said so to a South American Anglican bishop and um, hinted as much to some Lutherans as well. I wondered what you thought about that and whether it had been a stumbling block for you or whether you'd been reassured by reports or a sense that Rome's line on the validity of Anglican orders has become rather more nuanced. 
Well, I, I think it's, it has become more nuanced because of the recognition of the fruitfulness of the ministries of other churches. I mean, that has been the case since the Second Vatican Council and indeed Lumen Gentium and the decree on ecumenism. So there's no doubt about that. I mean, at my own ordination, there was an explicit recognition of priestly ministry as an Anglican. I mean, those were the, the words that were used. So there, there has been a recognition, certainly, what I regret very much is that the archaic agreement on ministry and ordination, among the other agreements, had opened the way for Rome to reconsider the question of Anglican orders. And I have uh, seen, other people have seen, correspondence between successive popes and archbishops of Canterbury and other Vatican officials, where Rome has been pleading with Canterbury not to go ahead with the ordination of women to the priesthood unilaterally, as this would jeopardize the agreement that had been reached, and therefore the question of reopening the uh, issue of Anglican orders. The replies that I have seen from successive archbishops of Canterbury is that they could not prevent this development, even if they wished to do so, because of the doctrine of provincial autonomy. Now, that is actually what has happened, and now the ordination of women to the episcopate means that recognition of Anglican orders by Rome you know, becomes more and more unlikely, and indeed by the Orthodox. The Orthodox were much more favorable to recognition of Anglican orders, but I think that has certainly severely retarded the process, let's put it like that. Uh, my own view is that rather than reopening this question, I think what we ought to be doing is to see how there can be a reconciliation of ministries if we are being led towards greater unity as churches. I wonder what you mean by that, because there could be no reconciliation of ministries that included, certainly at the moment, the recognition of female orders. And also, yes. I have to say that, you know, as Bishop of Rochester, you ordained women yourself. Indeed, yes. Yes, I did. Has your view now changed on that subject? Yes, I think it has changed. My view changed when I was chairing the Rochester Commission on Women Bishops. And uh, it didn't change suddenly, but, um, you know, we received large numbers of submissions. One of them was by the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, where they said that the Anglican Communion and the Church of England could not claim to share the same ministry as the Catholic and Orthodox churches, and then seek to change it unilaterally in this way. And of course, as you know, Cardinal Casper came to the Church of England House of Bishops. I was present at it, where once again he pleaded with the bishops not to go ahead with this development unilaterally. I keep using that word unilaterally, but I think it's a key word, because uh, he quoted St. Cyprian, Episcopatus Unus Est, the Episcopate is one. And if you make this kind of change unilaterally, then that changes the debate and the discussion forever. I think it is not the same with women priests, but once you have women bishops who then ordain other bishops, who then ordain priests and so on, you know, then you are making a visible break with any claim to apostolic succession, which the other churches might recognize. So in the southern province of Canterbury now, I understand that a woman bishop is often the principal consecrator of bishops. Well, I mean, that is a visible sign that 
the Church of England no longer wants to uphold any understanding of apostolic succession which Rome and the Orthodox might recognize. Indeed. You mentioned earlier provincial autonomy cited by the Anglicans as the reason that they had to go along with any decision about women priests. Lots of Catholics are worried that the spirit of sort of Anglican provincial autonomy is creeping into the Catholic Church with this very ill-defined and badly organized, I think, synodal process leading to a synod on synodality. Well, we have already seen German churches proposing radical breaks with tradition along the lines of liberal Protestantism. It seems to be a process that's run slightly out of control. And having watched myself, the Church of England, suffer grievously from synodal decisions running out of control, I'm one of those who's really worried about this process and wonder what good it will do. What do you think? Yeah, I make a distinction. I don't know if this is valid, between synodal and synodical. I think synodical has come to mean a kind of Presbyterian form of government where everyone has an equal say in every decision. Synodal or synod, of course, is an ancient way of the church making decisions. I mean, the ancient councils of the church were all synods, uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, etc., and of course, these were where the decision makers were the bishops, but they did have their advisors. I mean, Athanasius, I think at Nicaea was still a deacon in support there of his bishop. I mean, of course, one has to wait and see as to what happens and what the intentions are of those who have called this process into existence. But on the whole, a process of consultation and of gathering together what people are thinking and saying I don't mind as long as decision-making in matters of doctrine and morals, sacraments, these decisions are taken by those who are competent to do so. And that is the bishops with their advisors. I understand. But on the subject of the bishops and their advisors, there's been a strong growth in the influence of bishops' conferences since the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. Something that Pope Benedict actually warned against before he became Pope. Yes. Yeah. And I understand exactly why he warned against them, because one reads one dreary, pointless report after another. These bishops' conferences seem to be great creators of jargon-ridden waffle and suck up an enormous amount of the resources of the church, as is also the case, of course, in the Church of England. Now, you're a member of the Ordinariate. I feel, knowing a number of Ordinariate priests, if you were to ask me who are the 10 most dynamic Catholic priests in England today, I think a minimum of four nominations would come from the ordinariate. So, well, I'm very glad to hear that. Oh, I think so, and I could name. I won't embarrass them by naming them, but I think just in terms no, of no, no. in terms of its yeah. vigor, in terms of its enthusiasm and its creativity, it punches way above its weight. But it is held back by a bishop's conference, which in theory has absolutely no authority over it whatsoever which wants to sort of homogenize the ordinariate, which isn't particularly keen on the ordinariate liturgy, which I think is extremely beautiful and superior to the, the, the translation of the, of, of the new mass, but which really wants to put under its control that which Pope Benedict did not intend to be under its control. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, as you say, it is formally under the control of the Holy See, 
But of course, when it operates here, it has to operate in cooperation with the local bishops. I mean, there's no way practically that it could operate without that. Many of the churches that it is using are diocesan buildings. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do hope that the ordinary develops uh, a clear identity, not for its own sake, but for the sake of mission. Because if this is a truly English expression of Catholicity, that has missionary implications for the Catholic faith in this country. I'm sure that if it developed this kind of identity, then the wider church in this country would also benefit from that and learn from it. So I think that's that's true. I think there are things in the liturgy, the approach to preaching, in the approach to regarding the community as uh, the focus for pastoral work rather than just the congregation and so on. The ordinariate has a lot to contribute. And I think the, the energy you see is probably because of these things. And I think that the energy is notably lacking from the official church in England and the world, uh, not necessarily from its priests, but I do think that the structure of the church of England and Wales are constantly pushing clergy and lay people down sort of fashionable blind alleys. Well, you probably couldn't comment on this, but I, I just feel that the wrong people have been made diocesan and bishops and any sense of mission is really, really lacking. I think this is probably true of the churches in the West as a whole, they have somehow got into a kind of maintenance mode and sometimes even without knowing it into a main maintenance of decline, you know, management of decline. And some sort of good injections, I mean, the ordinariate is one example, but another one, for instance, is this, the advent of the Sarah Malabar in this country who have grown from almost nothing to vigorous congregations all over the place. And they are well financed, they are very enthusiastic, and if somehow they could be made mission-minded, I think they would have a great impact. I mean, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is another example. So I think what we will find, and some people won't like this, is a growing diversity in what it means to be Catholic. Well, I'm pleased you mentioned those two examples, because those are two churches, the Therese Malabar and the Greek Rite Ukrainians, who use a different liturgy. And I think maybe some of the enthusiasm comes from being able to have a, a liturgy that is their own. Uh, by the same token, I think that there was tremendous dynamism in those who attended the traditional Latin mass. But of course, there have been attempts to suppress that. Now, very recently I had Cardinal Pell on this podcast, and he made it clear that he was really unhappy with this inexplicable decision, as he put it. Yes, I mean, the, my instinct is to say, let a thousand flowers bloom, that different people will be attracted to different ways of worship, and that includes Eucharistic worship. The Ordinariate clearly is an example of this, where not just those from an Anglican tradition, but so-called cradle Catholics are attracted to its liturgy because it reminds them of their own tradition in an effective way. I don't see what the harm is in that. A good missionary approach is to see what is speaking to people and then let them do it within doctrinal and liturgical bounds, of course. Well, I wish somebody would explain that to Archbishop Arthur Roach, who very sadly is prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and that absolute control freak whose approach to this whole question has been cruel and insensitive to an alarming degree. But to move on to something more positive, this is your first Easter 
in full communion yeah. with the Holy See. Does that, obviously it doesn't change your understanding of Easter, but does it maybe provoke <laughs> new thoughts? Well, yes, I've been thinking about that. I'm preaching on Easter today, of course. The readings, which you know everyone will be using, suggested to me, first of all, the that when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and the, the apostles, that was the sort of first glimmerings of faith. It wasn't the faith in full that, that they had at the empty tomb. And that reminded me really of the missionary task of the church, that there are many people with glimmerings, apprehensions, sort of vague apprehensions of faith and how to fan that. You know, we have the Easter fire and I know how difficult it is to keep it going sometimes in the wind. But how to fan those flames into something that is living and life-giving. The other reading is uh, St. Peter's speech where he gives the uh, Gentile household the kind of kerygma, the gospel in a nutshell. I mean, that's what a kerygma is, the gospel in a nutshell. And I think that our people need to hear. They really need to know what the faith is about in ways they can understand. And then the third reading about Christ, our Passover, being sacrificed for us is actually about living the Christian life. Those are the three things I feel that we need to get across to our people. And if we can do that this Easter, that will be good for the mission of the church. Monsignor Michael Nazarelli, thank you very much.